The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to the Friday morning space show. And uh, I'm your host, David Livingston. And, of course, Friday morning is in Pacific uh, Daylight Savings Time because uh, I know not all of you are doing uh, things in the morning anymore. Um, I am your host, and um, we have a very interesting program for you, which I will tell you about in just a minute. A couple of very, very quick announcements. We are on the variable format this morning, so if you do want to talk with our guest or send in an email, please pay attention to the timing. And also, uh, Sunday is Father's Day. So we are not doing a program on Father's Day. And um, uh, so um, I wanted to make that clear. Uh, Tuesday is uh, an old friend of ours coming on the show, Dr. Ethan Siegel. He is a a physicist. Many of you have heard him before or read about his work. And uh, he has a lot of new work. It's been about three years since he's been on. And Ethan is a media guy. He kind of pictures himself as a, maybe a, who knows what, a Carl Sagan or something. He is great with media and has his own media, and he is a really fun physicist to talk to. So you will really enjoy the June 20th program. And Seth Shostak of City, SETI, excuse me, is back with us on Sunday, the 25th. And uh, then we go into the following week and we can talk about that later. And so um, remember, if you want to give us a call, our toll-free toll line is 866-687-7223. And, of course, email Dr. Space, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. A uh, couple of other very, very quick announcements. Uh, don't forget that the Space Show is a nonprofit, 501c3, and the parent is One Giant Leap Foundation, and we are a listener-supported program, meaning all of you guys out there that are listening, you support us with your contributions, and that um, enables us to do really interesting shows with terrific guests like the one I'm going to introduce to you in just a moment. Um, as a nonprofit, if you're a U.S. federal taxpayer, you get a deduction on your taxes for the donation. There is a PayPal button in the upper right corner of our homepage, thespaceshow.com, so you can't miss it. For those of you who like to use Zelle when contributing, our email address is david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. 
And for those of you liking to go old school, please make your check payable to One Giant Leap Foundation. And it mails to our Las Vegas address, which is on our website, and the PayPal button. And if you have any questions, just email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. We also have sponsors, so real quickly, this is a shorter format show. They get the banner ad going across the homepage, and I just shout out to them on the shorter formatted programs. This includes a shout out to Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, Celestis, the National Space Society, and Dr. Heim Benaroya of Rutgers University with his great books, which are on the uh, banner ad for his lunar development and lunar hab work. And remember, if you buy his books uh, from those banner ads, Amazon donates a portion of your purchase price back to the space show. Uh, today I want to um, in- introduce you to David Witowski. He is an IAAA, triple E, excuse me, senior member, and he serves as co-chair of the Deployment Working Group at IEEE Future Networks, co-chair of the Global City Teams Challenge Wireless Supercluster at NIST. He's on the board of expert advisors for the California Emerging Technology Fund and is a fellow in the Radio Club of America. And um, we're, we're going to talk about some interesting things that we really haven't talked about before. Uh, LEO satellites, communication issues, and infrastructure issues. So mostly we talk about, you know, in LEO, uh, debris. Um, but we don't always mention anything about communication and uh, infrastructure needs for that communication. David, welcome to the Space Show. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on today. Um, my pleasure, and uh, it's great to be able to talk to you. So um, let's set the framework for the discussion. Um, so there's a lot of LEO satellites and um, from non-space people, I'm constantly seeing how we're crowding up LEO. It's, it's going to be a disaster. The debris is a disaster. But they don't always talk about, is there communication uh, space, for saying it in sort of a, an amateurish way. They talk about other issues. What's the status with all of the the LEO satellites, and, of course, the intended ones coming from the clusters like Starlink. Yeah, well, certainly, you know, the idea of doing communications networks, broadband delivery from space is is not new. Uh, In in my career, I've seen several companies attempt to do this, uh, ranging from some geosynchronous concepts uh, down through uh, Neo and Leo, uh, each of them has encountered challenges, largely, I think, due to the state of technology, because communications networks that are space-based have unique challenges that are very different from terrestrial communications networks, the cell towers that we use to power our devices. Of course, um, 
SpaceX Starlink has gone farther in producing a product that I would consider to be viable for delivery of broadband to home uh, users or business users. And, and that's largely due to the advancements of technology and also their economics and being able to use reusable platforms and, and so avoiding uh, having to throw away a lot of material in the course of doing a launch. Um, you know, the networks are, I think, performing fairly well relative to what people expected. Maybe they, they aren't as performing as well, uh, but that is, again, because I think space broadband is hard. I know some people who have been using terrestrial connectivity, for example, I was visiting a friend of mine as a senior executives at one of the big companies that does um, technology in the Silicon Valley. He was on a wireless ISP connection up until recently, and he obtained a Starlink terminal and has, uh, was reporting that he was getting very good performance from it relative to the wireless ISP that he was using. Now, as a person who lives in a rural area, um, kind of far away, he's, he's going to take whatever connectivity he can get. So I think Starlink is one of those things that's, you know, sort of a best effort, and, and it doesn't perform exactly as you would expect. Nobody, nobody is going to say that Starlink is ever going to reach the performance of fiber optic connectivity to your home, but it's, you know, but it's good enough. And then recently we also saw that uh, AST, in conjunction with AT&T, had performed the first ever satellite to smartphone direct call, which was, was done to a handset terminal. And that was pretty interesting, although doing that at scale, I think, is the challenge. Right? It's easy to make a call work with some effort, but it's hard to do that to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users. And so it'll be very interested to see how the ASP AT&T effort moves forward when they try to scale that up to general use. You know, I have uh, one friend in a very heavily populated Connecticut area who is fed up with the outages of his cable company, and he has gone to Starlink almost exclusively and says it's much more reliable and the service is fine. And I have another friend in rural Montana that has some kind of service, but not not very good. And he's strongly considering Starlink, but, of course, once you get a certain distance from, from the antenna and, and the receivers, you have nothing. So um, it, it doesn't blanket the entire ranch but uh, n- neither does his cable service, then his cell service has to go through this because he has no cell service. So um, those are two people I know that either are using or uh, are planning to use Starlink, but everything I hear about it is that people are really satisfied other than the high initial cost to get into it. Right. Yeah, that's that's been the case. Um, certainly I, I've seen a number of people use Starlink, the challenge in some areas is that it is oversubscribed. 
when we think about the physics of how you do broadband from orbit, one of the biggest challenges that you face in designing a network like that is what we would call as an engineering term multi-access. In other words, um, think about if you were if you were speaking to an audience of 10,000 people and you asked for questions from the audience and 10,000 people raised their hand and tried to talk to you all at the same time. Satellite can see tens of thousands of subscribers at any given time. All of those could potentially be trying to talk to you. So how do you separate out all of those channels? How do you how do you manage the, the engineering term is the contention of the channel? And so Starlink has specified that within certain cells on the ground, just areas that they've defined, that they will have a certain number of subscribers because they want to manage the contention. But when those cells are now fully subscribed, people can still go to other areas, purchase the Starlink terminal, and then bring it into their home cell and turn it on. <laughs> of course, that now then creates a problem because the satellite network is expecting to see a maximum of a certain number of users in that cell. They exceed that number. Every terminal that they add creates performance issues for everybody else who's, who's in that cell. And so in some of these urban areas, um, that, that has been one of the things that's occurred. Um, so as we look at scaling up systems like Starlink, we have to ask the question is, is how, do we, how do we manage that? It's, it's effectively a tragedy that commons. Uh, there's, you know, it's so popular it becomes its own worst enemy, if you will. But I do think that relative to your, to your point about your friend in Connecticut who talked about their system, their cable network going down, you know, that's certainly something that we see a lot, that the current broadband networks that we have, terrestrial broadband networks, were built on top of infrastructure, twisted pair copper wires for telephones or coaxial lines for cable TV. Those networks were not designed as broadband networks. They, they were opportunistically used as broadband networks by people that were creative and figured out ways to repurpose built environment that was not designed for broadband. So it's pretty amazing that we even have broadband networks using that, that infrastructure because it was never meant to be, to be for that use. So as we add fiber, of course, we see that performance um, go up dramatically, that the reliability go up dramatically. And as we begin looking at things like Starlink, which was designed for broadband, um, then, then we're, we see that performance improvement. I'm often surprised when people complain how their cable network doesn't work very well, just because I, I think, to me, I know that it was never designed to be a broadband network. If you understand what I mean by that, uh, my my cable system is garbage, but it's 
it's mostly, I think, because they use really, really, really bad equipment. And um, yeah, well, that's another story. Uh, yeah, and, and that's a separate topic. But right. Yeah, it's, it's it's not. It's very hard in a, in a just diverging a little bit into that because I've done some work in the in the wired and the wired world in my past. It's very hard to keep that network running, just because the reality is is when you think about it, cable TV was installed what in the seventies, the eighties. And that network, that network is 50, 40, 50 years old. Um, wires to twisted pair of wires for telephones. Some of that could have gone in maybe you know a hundred years ago in some neighborhoods. And so we're, we're running broadband networks on on something that was designed a hundred years ago before <laughs> before our parents were born. Uh, it, 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 you know, so been... keeping it running is very challenging. Uh, I have an email question for you. It's from Todd in San Diego, California. And Todd says, um, uh, I'm, I'm curious about the different degrees of challenges. It seems to me that Leo comms back down to earth are one thing, but there is going to be more and more demand and usage for Leo to Leo if, in fact, refueling starts to take place and vehicles start acting as tubs, moving satellites around from various orbits and things like that. What is the communication like, Leo to Leo? Is it totally separate infrastructure and frequencies than going back down to Earth, or is everything getting crowded? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that Starlink has done is they've implemented a Leo-to-Leo communications backbone, which avoids having to go from orbit to ground and back to orbit again in order to do switching. When we think about how a network is built, you want to find the path that's fastest for the data. For example, as a, if you're on a, on a Zoom call, the delays can be noticeable. If, if you're on a slower on a slower network with what, are, what we would call higher latency, so one of the things that they've done is they've said, well, we're not going to go from orbit to ground because, of course, there's a speed of light limitation and there's a time delay. That's when you make that transit from orbit down to the ground. So from that perspective, you are you want to implement Leo to Leo communications. Um, that is done at a different frequency because you don't want those communication channels to interfere with your orbit-to-ground communications for either serving to the down to the user, sending data, or bringing data back up. Frequencies that are near, especially receivers, can create what's called desensitization, meaning the receiver becomes less able to hear Going back to my analogy of speaking to a, to a large audience and having a thousand people ask you a question, it would be like the same thing as having somebody standing next to you talking in your ear while a thousand people are asking you a question. It would be very hard to hear the audience because you would have somebody who was who was speaking directly to you. Um, so, yes, yeah, the Leo to Leo is, is certainly important, and and as we 
potentially get into an environment where we have multiple LEO constellations serving broadband, there will have to be some interchange of data streams. Right now, it's what we would call in engineering a walled garden, meaning you're within Starlink, everything works within Starlink. If you're going to hand off to another LEO constellation today, you would have to go back down to ground and go back up to orbit again. In the future, you won't want to do that. There are currently, to my knowledge, no standards for interchange of data at, at LEO, but there, there will in the future have to be when, when we look at how the terrestrial broadband network is built, there are interchanges between networks, and that, that will have to be replicated in the, in the satellite world as well. Are we on a path to do that? Are we lagging communications from the technology to be able to require that? To, to my knowledge, there is currently no standardization effort for LEO-to-LEO interchange, and, and that's probably because really at this point it's kind of Starlink and, and a bunch of other companies that are talking about doing LEO broadband. But if AST becomes successful, if Blue Origin becomes successful, if OneWeb grows, there are other companies that have talked about doing space broadband that would then um, lead to a need for an interchange standard. Um, it's likely that we would wind up repurposing some of the concepts that we use for terrestrial interchange, but, of course, there would have to be modifications for that to make it work in space. In space. Um, I have another uh, question for you. Uh, Cindy uh, is out of Tucson, Arizona, and Cindy says, um, I recall, and I guess maybe there's still a priority of government, although I haven't heard it talked about recently, nor have I heard it as a campaign issue, but not too long ago, these issues were about making sure everybody had access to, to the Internet and had access to information, and uh, that was going to come from satellites in space. Uh, is is that happening? Is rural Internet or connections to space becoming a thing? But if they're all priced at the rate of what Starlink prices, which I think is about $650 just for the equipment, there's not many people that can afford to take that. So how does all of that resolve itself? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting that SpaceX... Starlink was a technology that was considered viable, at least initially, for what was known as the, in the United States as the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, or the RDOT. And it was one of the, they were uh, successful in receiving um, bids or, or being successful in, in making bids for uh, census blocks in, around the United States. Uh, SpaceX, Starlink, unfortunately, was taken out of the RDOF program, and one of the reasons was because it did not perform to the level that the government had hoped that it would, or perhaps the, to the level that they had represented that it would in their application. 
So that created a kind of an interesting it gets back to that tragedy that commons, right? Why did why did it not perform? I apologize about the background noise here. Uh, you may be hearing a leaf blower. My, no, uh, no, we don't hear it. So I, at okay, least, that's at least I don't hear I, it. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I think, I, sometimes I think the landscapers at, at my office uh, watch my calendar and they know when I'm on an interview and they they come during my interviews. Uh, now, but, um, well, since you're in California, is this an electric uh, leaf blower or still no, gasoline? No, no, they haven't done that. They're uh, <laughs> they're still using the old gas-powered ones. But I, I guess at some point they'll maybe there's some law that'll force them to use electric. I don't know if that'll be any quieter, to be honest with you. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, back to the question of um, of Ardoff. So Starlink was an Ardoff technology and is no longer an Ardoff technology. Um, you know, the the Federal Communications Commission, the state broadband offices, the public utilities commissions for the various states, um, the National Telecommunications Information Administration, the NTIA, uh, they're all pretty big on the idea of um, fiber, right? There's a big fiber bias in, in those organizations, uh, even terrestrial wireless is sometimes has a hard time getting acceptance in applications for for funding. There was a big infrastructure act, the, the infrastructure uh, acts, uh, what we call the IIJA, that contained $65 billion U.S. for the purposes of deploying broadband. And it included various affordability plans, um, things that would allow you to offset some of the cost of broadband if you if you met certain income criteria. It included what was known as middle mile, which is for construction of the um, fiber networks that will link cities together, cities to communities. And then there was there's what's known as the last mile, which is referred to as the BEAD program, B-E-A-D, that is the connection to homes and businesses. But none of that is satellite. And, and so there was a lot of campaigning around the idea of broadband, but I would argue that a lot of the campaigning around broadband has been focused against wireless technologies and, and against satellite technologies, which, of course, are a form of wireless. So... Um... Uh, how does this uh, – do we have ample – well, I, I'm assuming, Leo, they always say it's a huge space, so there aren't space requirements, but what are the infrastructure needs? Let, let me go at it that way. Uh, if, if Leo is to be a major uh, source of communication for terrestrial needs but coming from space for – economics or reliability or whatever reason, what needs to happen that is not already in place in LEO? And who pays for it? Who puts it up? And when when is it put up? Or is it even developed yet? Well, I, I think we will continue to see, um, I think we'll continue to see deployment of networks, including Starlink and, and others, as we, as launches can occur, 
I know I, I live in an area where I can see Vandenberg launches when, at least when the weather's clear. And I, I see, you know, there's a mailing list that I'm on where we'll get announcements about, hey, there's going to be a, a Vandenberg launch. And of course, Starlink is launching out of both Vandenberg as well as Kennedy. And, um, that is, you know, that continues. I know that Starlink What's known as Starlink 2 is coming online, which is an advanced platform, and that is going to add some capability because the the advanced Starlink 2 platform has a larger aperture antenna, which, of course, allows you to transmit more information across a given channel and to be able to receive from from weaker uh, transmitters on the ground. So... There will be improvements in the performance of the network as Starlink 2 comes online. As we begin to see other players in this space, um, as to whether or not they're commercially viable, I think is really probably the big question. I mean, once you have Starlink in place and they begin consuming those subscribers, does it become economically viable to even try to do another LEO constellation, even though Starlink is expensive, you're kind of capturing those dollars because you're first to orbit. So the market's not broad enough for more than Starlink? I don't know if the market's not broad enough. I think the question is, is once you start getting competitors in, then then you you begin getting into a pricing war, which, of course, reduces your ability to pay back the investment. Uh, you know, the in the in the cellular world, in the traditional in the, in the terrestrial cellular world, we have um, what's known as a. There are certain metrics that we look at: uh, average revenue per user, and then what's known as customer lifetime value. So, ARPU and CLV are the two terms that, that we often use. You know, how long does it take a carrier to pay back the investment they made in building the network? and then getting you on board as a customer. Um, many people, I think, don't realize that the return on investment for a cell provider is something on the order of like seven to eight years. So as you become a subscriber to a carrier, they're already in the hole, and they're hoping you're going to stick around for a while to um, stay as a subscriber so that they can make the money back that they spent building the network and getting you to come on advertisements and things like that. Starlink, of course, is making a massive investment. It's expensive to um, deploy that constellation. And then that's probably one of the reasons why it's so costly initially, but of course they're the only game in town, so they can charge what they want. But as you as you begin competing with other Leo broadband providers, and they start discounting. Then, of course, your time to payback grows, and the other providers will have to ask the question, if we're going to have to discount to attract David Livingston as a customer away from Starlink onto our network, how much time is it going to be before we pay, we pay back that investment? And, of course, all of these things are they're private, and so there are investors, board of directors, stockholders, et cetera, that all need to know that their money is going to come back to them 
at some point. And the question is, how long does it take for that to occur? But I think there's room for more LEO broadband providers. The question that I think is outstanding is, is how many additional LEO broadband providers can the market support? And I don't know that we have good sense for that at this point. Do we need special infrastructure in LEO to facilitate this? And then um, real quickly, uh, Josh is in Los Angeles, and he says, um, how can one keep advocating for these constellations and satellites? There's already several thousand by SpaceX with several thousand more planned. Isn't the debris problem overwhelming, and nobody's really doing much about it despite talking and planning? Um, yeah, well, so two, two questions, uh, two questions there, which is, uh, I mean, certainly, certainly the debris problem is, is known, and the FCC has begun requiring the LEO providers to file deorbit plans and have a deorbit mechanism in, in place so that they're not just leaving things in orbit forever and hoping that they'll eventually come down somewhere that's not problematic. Um, debris is, is certainly, um, it's certainly something that I think the government is, is increasingly aware of as, as a problem. Um, there were, uh, Dr. Livingston, there were two questions in that, and I, I answered the second one. I want to make sure I answer the first one as well. If you could repeat it for me, please. Um, well, I was ad-libbing it because of his, his email. <laughs> okay, I understand. But, uh, um, he, he's really interested in knowing, and, and Josh, if you're still listening, you can, you can correct it. The, there's so many uh, thousands of these up there and uh, more are going up there all the time. So what is needed if Leo is going to be supporting thousands and thousands and thousands of private sector satellites to communicate back to Earth? And I might add, although he didn't add that to his question, is what are they going to be communicating back to Earth? Yeah, so in... In engineering, we, we have what's known as the Shannon-Hartley theorem, which is related to the amount of information that can be passed across any given communications channel. And that's like the speed of light or the acceleration of gravity. It's, it's, a, it's an, a constant. Um, like the speed of light, it's an upper limit, if you will, on the amount of information that can be passed over a channel. It doesn't tell you how to do it. It tells you that you can't do more than a certain amount for any given set of engineering parameters. Um, more communication channels equals more information throughput. Those have to then be placed on different frequencies or somehow or another kept separate from each other. Um, so you can use a variety of techniques to separate those channels out. But the bottom line is, is that the thing that gets you more information throughput is simply more platforms. So as Starlink continues to launch LEO platforms, they will add capacity to that network, which will improve their ability to serve numbers of subscribers on the ground. As Starlink 2 comes online, those platforms are 
more capable. They'll, they'll be able to pass more information through on any given communication channel. Um, but, but yes, we, we do get to the point where, where there's a question of how crowded is, is that orbit right? and, and how much material is in, is in that LEO orbit and, and is that potentially a problem? Um, the FCC can mandate deorbit protocols and deorbit mechanisms for these for these platforms, and, and they do. Um, do they always work? I guess I guess that's a question. What's the reliability of the deorbit? I don't know that we've tested that yet. Of course, there have been some satellites that have failed. Um, and I presume at some point Murphy's Law would say that we're going to have a deorbit mechanism that will fail. So there will be some there will be some satellites that will never uh, they'll eventually come down through decay. But um, I, I think there's also that question that's been raised about when a satellite deorbits. I mean the, the Atoms and molecules in the satellite do not go away. They simply burn up, but they're, they're still dispersed in the atmosphere. Is there a problem with the material that is burning up and that is now basically floating in the atmosphere for a period of time until it settles back down to the ground? And, and are those materials that were burning up going to materially be a problem for for human or, 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 in general, environmental health. I, I don't know. That's a big impact, but, but some people have raised that. I saw Robert F. Kennedy Jr. recently um, had tweeted about that topic, and he was complaining that nobody is looking at the question of what happens to the aluminum or other metals that are in satellites when they are deorbited de and burn up in the atmosphere. So, so certainly there are people who are thinking about this question. What does happen to them? Well, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't go away. I mean, we, you know, uh, matter is, is neither created nor destroyed. That's a, that's a fundamental thing. It simply changes form. So if, if a satellite is deorbited, burns up in the atmosphere, those atoms will convert potentially to other materials, but they, the, the amount of material uh, pretty much remains constant. Uh, and so you know, the things that don't burn, like metal, they will be atomized and will, will eventually settle down to the surface of the planet. And so we, we are spreading a certain, every time we do orbit a satellite, we're spreading a certain amount of metal into the atmosphere. Um, is that materially impactful to the amount of air that is surrounding the planet? Probably not. But some people are concerned about that question. I bring it up only because I know it's something that people have been talking about. I don't think relative to the volume of atmosphere that we have around the planet, is it's significant, but it is something that, that people have raised, raised some concern about. In the 22 years of doing the space show, <laughs> I believe this is the only time that has ever come up. I mean, I, I think a lot of people presume when things burn up in the atmosphere that they just disappear. Of course, they don't. Right? I'm not saying it's something I'm concerned about. It's, it's just something I'm, I'm mentioning that I've seen people recently 
and, and notably uh, as um, you know Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who who is of course the putting himself in as the candidate for twenty four on the Democrat Party. Does he support a policy for it, or or what does he, he say, or he just throws he it out? Supports the yeah, he supports the he supports an investigation into the question, and basically he said that nobody is looking at this, right? Um, and he has tweeted a couple times that he he thinks the FCC is turning a blind eye to the question. I wonder why he's got a, a thing for that. Um, well, he's always been an environmental lawyer, and I don't want to diverge into politics, right? Yeah. But he's always been a big environmental lawyer. He's he's been um, you know, he's been very concerned about environmental issues, and so from that perspective, I, I think he's raising it as a concern in the context of his. Um, I have a history of being an environmental lawyer. I have another email from you, and listeners, there's still time. If you would like to call us, we would like to take your call, 866-687-7223. This is from Jerry in Denver, and Jerry says, I haven't heard discussed what would be necessary. Is it something that people are thinking about? Is hardware necessary for LEO communication through cislunar space all the way to the moon? Maybe Leo communication someday to Mars. There was some discussion a while back. I, re- I remember, I remember seeing at a conference somebody gave a talk about the question of effectively non-terrestrial internet. In other words, how do we create a, an internet network between? Earth and orbit, and then Earth to the moon, Earth to Mars. That, that uh, I recall was something that, that was thrown up as a as a potential for down the line thinking on that on that topic. Um, there are some people who have raised that question. I don't know that it's really required at this point because everything that we're doing. On the moon is uh, being done with dedicated communications channels, but at some point we presume that that we do reach a point of sort of early colonization or, or early, you know, semi-permanent bases. Then, yeah, there will there will have to be a um, there will have to be some effort made. I know the ISS has basically an internet connection at this point. They have gotten to the point where the ISS is connected to the internet. And it used to be that it was over some better dedicated communication channels, but they've created broadband effectively on the ISS. Um, so some of those techniques can be repurposed when to Luna or, or other locations that, that maybe uh, need that, but of course we're not there yet. But there are some people within the IEEE who are thinking about the question of how do we create an Internet off the surface of the planet. Um, for um, satellites, do they normally carry with them all the hardware components needed for their communication, or do they rely on there being 
communication hardware that they tap into that helps them complete the link? Well, they will communicate either to other satellites, in the case of Starlink and their, their, their cross-LEO communications links, or orbit-to-ground communications links to, to connect into hubs, uh, ground stations that will then link to the, to the terrestrial Internet. So they carry all the equipment that they need for that. Um, if data in the Starlink system is intended for a subscriber who is not on that satellite, then the routing algorithm determines whether or not the packet for that destination should go down to ground or if it should be transferred across at the LEO level. But ultimately, of course, it, it goes down to the ground. Uh, so the satellites do cooperate with each other to transit information across the orbit network and then bring it down to uh, to the ground as at the point at which it is necessary to come down. Do international satellites communicate with satellites from other countries? This. Does Not that happen with the U.S. too, or is everything closed? I, I don't. I don't know that there's a lot of inter-satellite linking being done. I mean, most most satellite networks are walled gardens. They they work with the with the satellites from the country or the company that does that. They don't typically share information, not to my knowledge. Um. Do you see where where do you see Leo and uh, our ability to freely use Leo in ten years from today? Is it are we are we going to have free access to any place and what we want to do in Leo Leo at least comparable today, or will it be much more highly regulated and uh, we may not be able to access Leo or may have waiting lists or something like that? What? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, right now there is there's a regulatory environment that exists for access to to orbits that is um, through the government. Now, of course, there are also international questions there because Leo or Leo satellites do not just orbit over the country that authorized them. So I think there is a question of international coordination that needs to be addressed, it is, to me, unlikely, given the international coordination requirement, that we would have less regulated access to LEO. It feels to me like the challenges of coordination will become greater over time. The Concern, of course, being, and I, I think the United States does a fairly good job of regulating, although some would argue that they don't do as good a job they should. But for the most part, relative to other countries, I think they're doing a pretty good job. Uh, but, you know, we know, for example, that just to, just to name, you know, Russia typically does what they want. Uh, without a whole lot of discussion. And, of course, the situation in Ukraine right now 
limits our diplomatic ability. China has grown increasingly isolated in its approach, and they may just choose to do what they want without coordinating with us or with other countries that they don't consider to be friendly to them. So we're, we're entering a period of less international cooperation. So the question that becomes is, will the United States continue to regulate, or will they take the approach that, well, nobody else is regulating, so why should we? I don't know that we would go that route. My feeling would be that we will still continue to regulate and hope that other countries follow suit. We'll, we'll try to set the example. Uh, listeners, you can still call. Um, there's still time on today's program, 866-687-7223. Uh, Bob is up in Chicago, and Bob says, I'm an older guy, and uh, I remember early on in the space world, probably before commercial space really expanded, we were promoted and sold on ideas that we would have our own personal satellites that we could control for whatever reason we thought we needed a satellite from our smartphones, which back then were not really smart. Uh, I'm wondering if the idea of personal satellites communicating to lots of smartphones on the Earth, now that it has been successfully demonstrated that that can be done, is something that might start to blossom with uh, uses that we've never considered before, and each of us will want to have our own satellite. That would seem to complicate LEO by unbelievable degrees. What are your thoughts on the idea of people being able to have, manage, and control, maybe lease or maybe rent their own personal satellite? Yeah, I, I really question whether or not a personal satellite would be something that would ever be viable. I mean, certainly the cost of getting it to orbit would, would be out of reach for most people. Uh, I'm sure there are some Silicon Valley executives who might have enough money to do that. But the um, I don't think the average person would be in a position to do that. Um, a LEO satellite, of course, would have a fairly fast orbit period, which would only put it above you for a period of time. Um, so beyond the cost question and the idea that the satellite would spend the majority of its time not above you um, would seem to make that not a very viable solution for personal communication. If we were to place the satellite at geosynchronous orbit, then that would be possible. But once you're at geosynchronous orbit, you begin to deal with the question of just the amount of power that it takes to get a signal to and from orbit. I mean, the, the, the free, what we term in engineering the free space path loss, the amount of energy that is lost across distance from LEO is significant. To geosynchronous orbit, it's it's stunning. Um, that creates two problems, which is one, obviously the delta v to get a platform to geosynchronous orbit would be massive and very expensive. 
um, that puts it out of again. But presume you're very wealthy. Let's let's presume you're you're an extremely wealthy person. You want your own satellite. What would you do? How, well, first of all, you'd have to put a satellite up that that would have the ability to hear you from the ground. And because of the free space path loss problem, your handset would have to emit an enormous amount of power to be heard by a satellite in geosynchronous orbit. So now let's let's go down to the to the question of let's let's take that and let's apply it to the Leo constellations like Starlink. They still have a problem hearing those ground terminals. Your phone does not emit a lot of power. In fact the amount of power that your cell phone emits is just on the verge of what the IEEE standard for safe electromagnetic exposure considers uh, to, to be acceptable for, for a person. And so if your phone emitted enough power to reach geosynchronous orbit, it would be unsafe for you to hold it in your hand. And, of course, the battery would not last more than a couple seconds, right? You'd be burning every bit of battery power to get that one packet up to orbit. And then, of course, your phone would then have to hear that signal from space. And a satellite can have a large, what we call an aperture, the size of the antenna relates to the amount of gain the antenna can have. But you can imagine that your phone does not have a very large aperture. Aperture is approximately related to the square area of, of, the, of the antenna. Your phone has a pretty poor antenna in it because it has to be something that you hold in your hand. So how do you do handset to satellite communications in a world where your, your phone cannot emit more than the power that it already emits? It has a very, very poor antenna. It has a limited amount of battery life that allows that device to communicate. This is one of the reasons why the terrestrial cellular companies have been putting or have been putting what are called small cells or, or low power cells in and around places where people congregate is because they're trying to reduce the amount of power that is necessary for your phone to communicate with the network. But when you go to, to orbit, it's significant. And that's why I talked about how Although AST Space Mobile has done a an orbit to handset connection for demonstration purposes, there's really a question of scale there. No one talked about how long the battery <laughs> lasted on that handset or how much it was depleted by by that call. Would it be something that would you would be able to carry that phone all day and, and be able to make connections to space? Um, that I think is is the big challenge that we get into in in direct handset to satellite communication. So, long-winded way of saying I really don't think personal satellites are something where we would ever see. It just doesn't make engineering nor economic sense. About ten, and and you, I know we have a caller on hold, but this will be a real quick caller. About maybe 10 to 15 years ago, I remember being at a space advocate, and I won't say the name of the organization, but I do remember a conference in Silicon Valley. I think it was uh, in, closer to San Jose. And um, 
a demonstration was made in the business plan competition uh, with a guy who uh, was demonstrating. So the iPhone would have been fairly new, but it was an iPhone that he could communicate with a, a CubeSat in space, uh, and that eventually. Uh, this would be a really big market, and people could have their own CubeSat and and do this from from the ground. Now he's trying to communicate with data. He wasn't using voice, and I don't remember if it was a completely successful presentation in terms of did it really work or was he just trying to show us how he thought it would work. But that was a long, long time ago, and I don't know that that's ever come to pass. Or I don't know that there's a market for it in the first place. But. Well, so so two things, which is um, I've, I've spent the vast majority of my career in Silicon Valley, and I can tell you that um, PowerPoint <laughs> was PowerPoint abounds in Silicon Valley, and it's it's very easy to create a PowerPoint that claims all kinds of things, um, specifically for the purposes of getting a venture capitalist to hand you a large check. And that was for the purpose, that is, absolutely, yeah. Right. So, um, you know, uh, lies, damn lies, and marketing right. is, is the way I would look at that. But, um, I mean, right now we have a smartphone to space connection, which is actually provided by Apple. Uh, the iPhone, the, the newer iPhones have the um, the emergency term, the emergency yeah. SMS, right? Right. Okay. Well, I happen to actually, I know the guy who runs the emergency SMS um, group. Uh, he's a very smart guy, somebody I've known for many years. He, um, you know, the the idea there is that it's an extremely low information channel that really allows you to just get a very short message through. So when we talk about information bandwidth, when I talked about that Shannon Hartley theorem, the idea that the amount of information that you can pass through a, a given communication channel is proportional to, first of all, the communication channel bandwidth, but also it's proportional to a mathematical function of the power and the amount of noise that's in the system. Well. I can get more information through a system by increasing the power. It's very hard to eliminate noise because noise is a fundamental constant in the universe. As, as electrons move and bounce off of each other, they create a certain amount of electrical noise that cannot be removed. Um, but I can increase the amount of bandwidth that's, a, that's in the channel. We could certainly do that. It becomes a challenge from spectrum management. But I can also just say, okay, fine, I'm okay with the idea of having a lower information channel. Um, so when we, when we look at the emergency SMS system, it is an extremely low information channel. You're not going to send a picture through it. You're not going to send a voice file. You're not going to download a TikTok video. You're going to send a few characters of text. And, and it takes a few minutes to get through the system. Um, it actually reminds me a lot. Of course, my friend works for Apple, which means he can't tell me anything that he does. It's like, I think I think my friends who work for the government can tell me more about what they do than my, my friends who work at Apple. 
um, because Apple is extremely careful about intellectual property protection. But it reminds me of a system that the amateur radio community has been using for a number of years that is a, um, a very low information throughput system that was based by um, based upon a technology that was developed by um, Joe Taylor, uh, who's uh, he's a Princeton professor. It's actually, you know, he has a Nobel Prize. Uh, he's a co- co-winner of a Nobel Prize in, um, I think he was, if I remember correctly, it was related to the something to do with gravitational lensing. Um, but anyway, he's a ham radio operator, and he created this system that is basically a high replication, high forward error correction method where you can get, like, it takes a minute to send 13 characters. But you can, with basic equipment, you can you can bounce the signal off the moon. Um, but you, you're only going to get 13 characters. It takes a minute to do it, right? So that's very similar, I think, to what Apple is doing with their emergency SMS. So if we're saying communications to space, that's one thing. If we say broadband to space, it's a different thing because you're talking about a very, you're talking about a much wider channel. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can demonstrate basic SMS to and from space, and that that happens today. It, it's a it's a thing that exists. Uh, I don't know if you're going to make phone calls to to and from space from a handset, maybe in the future. But broadband space is is more challenging because you're using more energy to to overcome the limitations of that channel. Um, I want to get to the caller, but I know when Apple told me that they were activating the emergency thing on my iPhone 14, they said, first of all, you, you have to, you know, there has to be a satellite overhead. So mm-hmm. that may not be the case, and that may not be the case for quite a while. And number two, it will send an SOS signal to somebody. You, you don't get to text your kids or anyone, like right. you're saying. Right. It, it'll it'll send an emergency, very short message with your coordinates, and that's right. it. Right. If you can reach a satellite, let let's right. let's see who your caller is. A uh, high caller. Sorry for the delay in bringing you up, but who are you? Where are you today? Thank you for your call. Oh, no problem. I'm Tony Cook calling from Pasadena. Hi, and, um Hi. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I um, attended some 75th anniversary of uh, the Palomar Observatory uh, events at Caltech, and I got to talk to professional astronomers and, and observers and stuff and brought up Starlink. Um, and which, by the way, on social media, if you are at all a fan of Starlink, you are, some astronomers will, you know, block you and stuff. I mean, they really hate. It, 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 it's the politically correct thing is to hate Starlink. But I noticed at this conference that there are telescopes being designed for deployment near the South Pole, for instance, that may depend on Starlink to be able to operate them and send data and stuff. Uh, there's no other internet connections to them. And um, so it, there seems to be sort of a mixed, in, in reality, there's kind of a mixed uh, reaction to Starlink. Um, uh, one observation I had is that 
people who are doing broad sky survey things where they pick up Starlink satellites um, optically would be helped if they had more precise orbital data. One, one thing they said is if they knew precisely the orbit of each Starlink satellite, they can eliminate that uh, streak that's made. But they don't have enough precise data right now to actually do that. So in the few cases where they actually get streaks through the thing, they would be able to eliminate that. So if that can be passed on to whoever needs to know, <laughs> that might help. Um, also, so far, no data from, like, the Zwicky survey, which is looking at the entire sky every clear night, which I think the last clear night we had in Southern California was back in February. But, um, but so far, no transient phenomenon, no like supernova or comet or asteroid or whatever that has been discovered has been compromised by a Starlink satellite in spite of all the hype, okay? And they expect like with the Vera Rubin satellite, the giant Vera Rubin telescope, the giant array in giant telescope in South America that will scan the entire universe to great depth, they expect maybe 10% of its data will be compromised by Starlink. So those are just some hard data that I heard from it. But I also talked to people, I guess they have actually some kind of legal thing going with Starlink, uh, you know, a legal uh, a lawsuit, okay, going against Starlink to guarantee access to certain types of visible and radio astronomy um, protections. And I am just curious if I could hear, like, what you know about how how SpaceX in particular is acted to help protect astronomy, which they all admire. I mean, there is acknowledgement that Starlink, at least, is trying to help astronomy. Um, but does that carry over to other satellite constellations? And I, I kind of think, just from what I've heard, that Starlink might be the least of astronomers' problems <laughs> compared to other satellite constellations that could appear. Anyway, I, I, I'd like to just listen to any anything you have to say about that off the air. Okay. And uh, and thank you for a great show. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate your call. Um, yeah. Comments. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, uh, certainly, I, I think that. A lot of what's going on right now is, and of course I'm not speaking for Starlink in any regard. I have, I have no horse in that race one way or the other, I'm just observing. But it, it feels to me like there's a lot of interaction between Starlink and the U.S. government, uh, particularly to the Federal Communications Commission, who holds regulatory sway over, over orbit um, and orbital technologies. Um, which is an interesting thing. I've always thought it was interesting the FCC had uh, sway over orbit, but um, for whatever reason, they do. And so it feels to me like, I mean, if you look at the filings and you go through, I mean, if you, you research through the FCC's electronic comment filing system, you see a, a lot of information from 
from SpaceX, a lot of filings from them. So they're they're very interactive, but but I do think that it is new territory, and so we are we are cutting new paths in this, given the number of platforms that have to go up to make the network work. Um, you know, it it feels to me like the government is trying to do what they can to keep things organized, but then they're also, in typical government fashion, learning as they go. And so, you know, there's mistakes probably have been made and will be made. Um, I think one of the bigger questions that, I mean, I can see how the astronomy community would see Starlink as a threat. Um, I think one of the unanswered questions here that we haven't even talked about, and I don't know that anything is happening in this regard, but what if another country decides that they want their own Starlink? What if China decides that it wants to have its own Starlink constellation? Um, we're not going to get a lot of information from them about orbits and we're not going to get, you know, there's not going to be a lot of sharing of KEPs to uh, to map that out. Um, so, you know, as as we are doing things, and it seems like those things are contentious. We, I, I hate to say it, but we may look back on on these times as the good times because later on it may be it may be that we have no control over things because it's being done by another country. Um, and if China decides to do its own version of Starlink or Russia decides to do its own version of Starlink, probably less likely because of economics. But China certainly has the money to do their own their own Starlink constellation. That's going to create further congestion. And, and we, I guess the big question that we have to ask is, in the end, is it worth it? Is it a net good to society for us to be doing broadband from space versus doing broadband using terrestrial methods? Where do you where do you? And I don't know that we have good. I don't know that we have good a good answer to that question at this point. Do you have an opinion on that? Um, it the the thing yeah. So so my opinion is primarily based in an observation, which is that any space-based platform is inherently frozen in time at the date of launch. So as a satellite goes up, it, it is never going to be serviced, right? You, I can climb a tower. I can climb a cell tower in the United States or wherever, and I can replace the radios and I can make it better. I can go up to a tower that was first erected back in the old days of, of course, we didn't call it 1G back then, but now we call it 1G. I can climb a tower that's been around since the late 90s, and I can replace the radios and the antennas on it, and I can improve it. Um, I can't do that in space. And so anything that we do in space is frozen in time. And you hope that you can predict 
where the technology is going to go far enough in the future that the investment of time, resources, money, and impact to the environment is worth what you get in return. If you don't predict the future accurately, then then you will have wasted a lot of those. You'll you'll incurred negatives that may not overcome the positives. So to me, a lot of what we're doing with space, Leo broadband, is hoping that the ends justify the means. Um, I don't have an opinion one way or the other about whether or not it does. I'm just in my mindset as, as an engineer and a systems uh, and a systems thinker is, is asking the question, you know, how much do we really know about the net benefit trade-off that we're making for this? And, and I don't know that we necessarily have all the data in that regard at, at this point. And so there, we may end up realizing that we did something great, or we may, we may end up realizing that we made a mistake. Um, you just got a, a quick email from Bill in Seattle, which probably is the last one we're going to get of the day. He says, what about the development of the industry in the field for orbital servicing and platform servicing for satellites, wouldn't that kick in at some point with technology and allow that platform to be modernized? Yeah, if we if we can get to that point, um, that would be great. I mean, right now the U.S. is relying on Russia to take us to orbit. You know, when we we hitch rides. To the ISS. From that, we no longer have a space shuttle program. Um, I'm not aware that we're close to making any sort of breakthroughs in terms of orbital servicing. Now, I would imagine that SpaceX is thinking about that because it is something that we would like to do. But with the shuttering of the Space shuttle program. I mean, we've lost our ability to, to take ourselves to orbit. Um, we, we, I guess, we could have other ways to get up there. But I, I, it may, it may be that that becomes one of those things that pri- that's privatized, right? And so some company will figure out that uh, a, a way to make it economically viable to do suborbital or, or uh, Leo servicing. I think the resources are challenging. I think the development of the technology is challenging. I think the fuel requirements are challenging. Of course, all of this would be solved if we could build a space elevator, um, as uh, as many people have, have dreamed about doing for for many years. And if we can get a if we can build a space elevator, then all of that might potentially become very viable. But, but currently, I don't know that anybody is thinking about doing that. I do lots of interviews with entrepreneurial companies, and they have great PowerPoints, to go back to your comment on PowerPoints. But they, they have tugs 
and uh, they say some of them are already operational and I don't know what they mean by operational because there aren't space tugs flying around in, in LEO, at least I'm not familiar with any. Um, but there, you know, there's no shortage of aspirations for space tugs and for companies developing plans for orbital servicing, some more advanced than others. But, I'm, again, I'm not aware, which doesn't mean much, but I, I'm not aware of any market uh, or any activity. I, I think maybe Northrop Grumman has probably demoed uh, some orbital, orbital servicing of a satellite or something like that, but it clearly is not uh, in a commercial you know, market, and there clearly don't seem to be any customers for it at this point. But down the road, I guess the optimism is that these tubs that many of these companies say that they're building uh, and, and what they're learning will will rule. And whether that happens or not, I, I guess it, it remains to be seen. I, I, I would not make the investment, but they may know a lot more than I do about it. It's, I mean... Yes, it's a great point, which is that, I mean, typically in space, a lot of our technological development has proceeded from commercialization of efforts that were originally funded by government and, and military operations. So, you know, can you go directly into privatization of space tugs based upon and purely commercial investment? Probably not, um, just because the amount of money that required to do that development work is something that governments can afford to do. Of course, you know, that relies upon their ability to, to fund that or pay for it with debt financing. But the reality is, is that it's, it's probably going to proceed from – so now that now we ask the question, right, to your point, you know, Northrop Grumman has demonstrated it. What, what, if anything, does the U.S. government have right now in terms of space tugs? Maybe that's even used for military operations that we're not even aware of. Um, it could be that there's something that's being developed that is um, not public. Uh, what was that? The, there was that. Was that X? What was it? The X-37, the unmanned shuttle. The space plane, I guess they refer to it as. Um, does that have some sort of tug capability? Can that? I'm not sure, right? But that's an unmanned platform. Uh, you're, you're talking about something that doesn't have to have humans on it. I suppose it's possible that we could develop space maintenance platforms which are unmanned. But of course, humans, getting humans to orbit for maintenance purposes is very different because they have to be they carry air and food and water and they poop and then they have to get rid of the <laughs> right, we have to get rid of waste and, and there's a whole lot of you know, humans are, are a much bigger problem um, getting them to and from orbit and, and of course you you have the risk of mistake and people die. Well um, but yes. It's, there could be an op there's certainly a market for it. I, I think at some point there'll be a market for it, but um, not. We well, don't think we have anything today that I'm aware of. 
No, and and as I said, I've seen a lot of these entrepreneurial companies, and they they've got names for their tugs and the this and the that. But uh, listen, I I hope a couple of them survive, and uh, and actually bring a product to market. And I know uh, orbital servicing for hotels and other things like that is being talked about and planned by some companies. Uh, but we'll, we'll see how it all unfolds over the future. Um, we're nearing the 90-minute the point. Is there something we should have asked you about or you you wanted to talk about that we haven't had the opportunity? This would be a good time to bring it up uh, before we run out of time. No, I don't – I mean, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I, I don't think there's anything we haven't really talked about Um I'm hopeful that, you know, we will see – I'm hopeful that we will see the commercialization of space um, grow because I think it is one of those things that we have to – we have to begin um, transitioning towards that model. I and mean, it, it can't just be a government thing forever. Um, and and so from that perspective, I, I hope that SpaceX, Starlink – can show that economic viability, um, you know, bearing in mind that we talked about a lot of the questions of potential environmental impacts or, or just sort of visual pollution or, or radio pollution uh, due to those platforms emitting RF or light. And that is, you know, those are the things that we have to work through. It feels to me like we're sort of at that, inflection point of will this become something that is viable? It feels like it's getting traction. Um, but again, I, I go back to that question of will the final analysis show that the net positive is, is something that I really think we're, we're not we're not really there yet with that answer. But we'll, it'll be it'll happen in the next couple of years. David, I want to thank you for joining the space show. It's a fascinating target and and topic, and hopefully we can check in with you later and and see what kind of progress is being made in some of these areas. And hopefully you'll be able to make a return visit to the space show. But thank you again for sharing some really interesting perspectives and information with us, and we appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I do want to shout out to Jack for helping to arrange this program, and um, uh, his uh, labor and, and effort to do that was greatly and is greatly appreciated. So thank you very much, Jack. And, uh, David, uh, I will send you the archive when I get it posted, and we'll look forward to uh, talking to you again. Are you, by chance, going to be at the uh, AIAASN conference in Las Vegas in October? No, I, I have no plans to be there at this time. Okay. Sorry. I, I was going to uh, see if I could meet up with you and meet people. I like to meet people who have been on the space show. So uh, a lot of them do come to uh, to Ascend, and I live here, so I'm, I just need to grab an Uber to get down there. So um, anyway, uh, maybe another time. And uh, thank you again for being with us, and we look forward to uh, staying in touch with you on this topic uh in you know over time and we'll check in with you again uh thanks again for the opportunity to be here uh let listeners that's it for today and uh 
again, no show on on uh, Sunday because of Father's Day. And uh, everybody have a great weekend, including Father's Day. And uh, on behalf of David and David and the Space Show, thank you very much. And as always, keep looking up. Uh, once again, enjoy the upcoming weekend. Goodbye.